0: Welcome back, and welcome to our storytelling conversation. My name is David Franer, and I'm here with Martin Rumscheid. And Martin, thanks for joining our conversation about stories and storytelling. And we do know that you're not only only a storyteller, but a professor and a minister. And we have a lot to talk about, because I'm also a Unitarian Universalist minister, retired. So there's a little bit of a religious conversation there, and someone who appreciates the uh, value of education. So there's more to talk about there. But um, let's first talk about stories and storytelling. And <clears throat> are there, uh, due to the limitations that we have of our protocol of 10 minutes, are there things about your what I call your great escape that, that we didn't get to hear or other parts to add to that story just for fun? Or is that pretty much it?
1: I mean, I was focusing so much on the actual moment of the time to get out there. The preparations were, I I knew the preparations were going on, even though I was only 11 years old at the time. Uh, I knew about them because my parents kept saying, you will say nothing outside of the house of what you hear that's going on in here. And I remember one day I forgot about this, and the truck driver who, who was driving us at that night had been to the border and I'm, I was outside and there were other people around and I said oh Mr. Helling uh, how are things at the border Whoa! and uh, uh, he pretended to, uh, as if I hadn't existed <laughs> so he, he didn't do anything which was probably a bit into uh, to my, in, in, my favor but the point was that uh, when you are in a situation where you really can't ever trust the person around you what will they say what will they not say Particularly right. when uh, leaving one sector into another, because it has a political dimension. And at that point, that stuff was all unclear to me and, uh, and in a foreign territory. Fortunately, nothing happened. Yeah. Um, not that we escaped from a hell and into a paradise, because existence in Germany after World War II, irrespective of where you were, was precarious and particularly uh, a very bad winter and extreme shortage of food. So uh, whether you we were in, in the, with the Americans or the Russians. So all this stuff came together. Um, <clears throat> it's a time I, I can now think about with far more uh, or with much less concern than I had at the time. Yeah. Now, how did you wind up in Canada?
0: That wasn't entirely clear to me
1: my dad's company uh, IG Farben, a huge chemical conglomerate was in the United States between the two wars. They had factories in New Jersey and then when the war came after the war the company wanted to go international again so we left Germany actually in 49 to go to Switzerland that was the first industrial transfer for my father and from there we, we, we went to Canada because Canada opened its borders to German industry before the United States did. IG Farben wanted to go to the US, but no, in, in 1951, 52, that wasn't the case. And in 52, uh, the province of Newfoundland had joined Canada in 1949, and they were looking for industry. So they invited my father's company to come. But Newfoundland is, is way off, <laughs> far away from the market, no chemical industry, no, no uh, petrochemical industry. Montreal was then the place to go, and so we did. Wow. Now, along the way, uh, you decided at some
0: point to become a minister and you were uh, ordained in the United Church of yeah. Canada. Is yeah. that something you'd wanted to do from a young age or is that something no. you came to later on? And do you use storytelling in your ministry? Good,
1: good. Glad to hear that. (laughs) Um, I mean, my primary example of storytelling is the Bible. Right, of course. Um, Fortunately, there are no dogmas in the Bible. They're only stories. That's very, very helpful for me. But the reasons why I decided to do that, I wanted to be a geologist. I love the outdoors in Canada. I love particularly the, the North, where there's this open, the huge open spaces. When you come out of claustrophobic Europe, into that space, oh wonderful. Mm. So I enrolled in geology at McGill in first year science. I failed mathematics, I failed physics, I failed geometry, uh, geology. So I decided I'm just going to change that letter at the beginning of the word from G to T-H. (laughs) That of course is not what happened, but... uh, Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. I I had a, we had a very, very fine minister and, and a British minister in our church in, in Montreal who had been in World War I in the mess in Verdun where he, he told us about this and he said that experience was such that I'm working for the rest of my days for, for the reconciliation among enemy countries and the way he received us Germans I was touched by the humanity of this man and then by the religion that he had behind it or in it I thought that's what I'd like to do but very quickly into my studies, even in my undergraduate art studies, uh, I said, I will do studies theology, I will be ordained, but I want to work in the university. So I'm really essentially an academic rather than a pastor. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. So uh, you're an academic theologian.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, but you did pastor churches.
1: Yes. And
0: tell us a little bit about, I, I'll just speak for myself, <clears throat> I've been interested in storytelling for a long time, and I think that really successful ministers in terms of the sermon and Sunday morning service preparation involves storytelling and an understanding of storytelling and the way that stories can connect to people at a deeper level than just logic or rationality, which is also important in aspects of theology. So I wonder if you have insights about the use of stories in your sermons and other part, or maybe even in adult if you did adult education programs in the churches that you serve.
1: Uh, let me tell you a, 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 a true Jewish story at this point. It's told of a, of a rabbi in, in Eastern Europe, a very wise man. He was old and he was dying. And all his students gathered, they knew he was dying. They wanted to be there. They wanted to hear his last words. And so they were in the house and outside the house. And finally the old rabbi said, God is like a mountain and so this word spread from one student to the other outside God is like a mountain and then the question came back what do you mean? <laughs> so it took all the way come back and then came to the rabbi the rabbi then said well maybe God isn't a mountain <laughs> <laughs> and so it went out and back <laughs> what I like about that story is that um, you can retract a story you can expand it you can do things with it that you can't do with a scientific theory, that you can't do with a theorem, or that you can't do with a philosophical statement. They have to be precise and method, in method, etc. Whereas when it comes to, to and this is what I finally really like about the, the, the Jewish habit. Uh, you know how many times have you experienced this when you ask a Jewish question, a Jew a question, and he says, "Let me tell, tell you the a story. story." Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the clue right right so to for me then to unlearn the dogmatic way of thinking or doctrinal way of thinking moving into the ability to finding the story because a story has open to many interpretations whereas a dogma ain't yeah so uh, and and I'm I'm not, not that I used it very much in sermons uh, in the classes that we had at, at, at university about preaching, um, the teacher said, I will forbid you to make the mistake that you begin a sermon with a joke because the people will remember the joke and nothing else. <laughs> Tell them a story because then they want to listen what, how the story proceeds. And I think that was good advice when I got it in my early 20s. Now at some point you shifted from, if I have this right, you were a
0: pastor and then you shifted to being more of an academic theologian. Yeah. What led to that shift? <clears throat> or was that, something you, was that something you sort of planned on from the time you
1: were a theological student or? Yes, yeah, even in, in, in arts. Uh, the university atmosphere attracted me. Um, and I liked particularly the opportunity to be together in dialogue with colleagues. Yeah? Um, when you are in ministry, there aren't often, or there may be not much time when you really can have conversations with your colleagues without a time limit. Oh, I have an appointment right, to go right. to kind yes. of stuff. Yes. Understood. And uh, <clears throat> so the ability to talk to colleagues, and then above all in the classroom, that attracted me. Yeah. To, to be in, in a room with students, some of them are uh, not dreadfully interesting, <laughs> and, and I'm sorry to say <laughs> uh, I should have actually said some of them weren't interested in what I was doing but that's, uh, that's another point <clears throat> What uh, when you have a student and there are students who can carry a conversation or they can raise questions then all of a sudden teaching is fun and if th- teaching theology could be fun was something I wanted to find out so I've, I've preferred the, uh, the seminar session to the lecture session although much of, most of the time I was in fact lecturing yeah uh-huh. so, um, is this, this being together with, 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 with young exploring minds yeah. uh, I, I, I'm glad I'm, I'm maybe boasting a little bit uh, among my classmates at McGill was a fellow called Leonard Cohen and Leonard Cohen was a debater and I was just fascinated by his ability what he was able to do in a situation of conversation where there wasn't a fixed something that he had to work with, but he had to work with people. So <clears throat> those influences were the ones that led me into seeking the academy rather than the, uh, the, the, the pastoral work. Now that I'm t- talking about pastoral work, the one thing I can't do in a worship service, I can't tell a children's story. Really. I'm uh, an absolute flop when it comes to it. (coughs) I don't know why that is. Hmm. That's funny. So when it comes to adults, then I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed the part
0: of the sermon where working with kids, telling children's stories. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. So at some point you decided to sort of shift gears and uh, are now doing storytelling on a more regular basis. Um, how how did you actually make that transition? To was it yeah? How how yeah. did you s- take up storytelling as such?
1: It uh, um, it's interesting that you phrase the question. How did I take up storytelling? <clears throat> that's uh, well maybe storytelling wasn't... took you. I don't know. No, I think that's closer to it. Um, when i began to explore the uh, involvement of the german churches in the holocaust uh, and that's when the, and finally in that, that course it took many years when i finally began to be able to talk to jews particularly to survivors survivors have stories survivor stories yes survivor stories and the holocaust if you even want to deal with it, can be dealt only can be dealt with only in terms of stories. Um, <laughs> uh, if if I want to tell, someday I may come and come to a story here on, on what happened to me at the time when I was in Auschwitz. Um, uh, the the, uh, the the relationships that are established, between Jews and non-Jews or between Germans and Jews, in my case particular, is, not when we deal with issues but when we listen and, and that's why we was the opening right. the listening beautiful the way she did this um, <clears throat> because other than listening we have very few um, mechanisms to establish relationships particularly relationships of trust yeah? um, I don't have to believe the the words of a story, but I have to believe the person who uses the words, mm. and that to me is is the uh, is the motor in, in, in storytelling. Yeah? yeah, yeah, yeah. And above all, then of course, uh, I've stopped reading the Bible as doctrinal material. I, I just read now everything is story, right. Right. and I want to know about the incident, the time, and the people were telling, beginning to tell those stories, and what happened to them. Yeah.
0: Well, I I guess uh, your point about listening, I think, is very well taken. I think part of the power of storytelling and why uh, those of us who are involved with True Tales Live are so invested in it is that we live in a time when uh, there's more shouting going on in our culture and relatively little listening. And I think your point is very well taken that there's something about the art of storytelling that invites listening and and thereby uh, creates, I would say, an environment or an opportunity for connection that just rational dialogue doesn't really do. Does that make sense to you? So there's something something about, and I don't know what it is exactly. I'd be interested in your thoughts here. There's something about the way in which good, true storytelling takes place, that it reaches people and, and invites them to connect and um, join together at some sort of a deeper level. And the, the mechanism of that somehow is listening. I mean, you're telling the story, but it's the act of listening that's so important, um, and it creates the opportunity for a kind of human compassion and connection that I think simple rationality doesn't do. Yeah. Does that make When I listen to the five preaching to the preacher. So, uh, what's wrong with this picture? (laughs)
1: Um, When I listen to the five stories, and I just look at the emotions that I felt, yeah, the incredible wealth of emotions that uh, I I don't normally feel during the rest of the day, yeah, right, Um, right, and, and and the connection I make with human beings through that. And then again, to have, when, when I told my story, how people then connect t- to me right. through the story right. Right. is right. Um, yes. the bonds that we create among, between ourselves. And of course, essentially, uh, what, what being a follower of a particular religion is, is to, to relate yourself to other human beings in certain ways. Yeah? Yeah. But it's relate to other human beings, not yell at them right. or ignore yeah. them. Right. Yeah? So
0: storytelling creates the possibility for a kind of relational experience that just uh, didactic uh, uh, lecturing or, pre- or preaching in that sense. Uh, it just doesn't do it at the same. So one of the things that we're, I'm always curious about <coughs> is um, the, the art and craft of storytelling, how you go about putting a story together. Uh, do you do it the same way do you, each time? Do you do it a little bit differently? Do you have a sort of a regular approach? And for any newbies out there, some suggestions or tips?
1: Hmm. When I, uh, even when I wrote sermons, I wrote my sermons always with an imaginary audience in front of me. So I was talking to imaginary yes, people. Understood. Which then on Sunday were the real people. Um, so that right from the from the beginning, I, from my communication was to form, was to 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 be able to to, to establish relationships. Now it was wonderful that st- some stuff that we can do in preaching, is important enough for people to listen to because they want to have a relationship. So I was able to to make make use of that in my work. But nowadays, when I when I think about storytelling, is uh, there is an urgency for me to deal with what uh, my country did, what the Church did in, in Nazi Germany in order to find ways of reconciling. Yeah? Um, in Canada, the, the, the United Church or the churches have been very much concentrated over the last 20 years to re- re-establish relationship with the indigenous peoples and the first thing the religious people we were always doing they did this to me when I was in Vancouver a couple of years ago the first thing they say is Martin stop talking listen and then they sit there remaining silent for 15-20 minutes and boy is that a teaching method to listen to silence before you talk and before they talk so I, I see dimensions in there uh, I'm not going to call them some ontological dimensions, pardon me for the big word, no, that's fine. but they have to do with, with the being of human beings that I had never recognized before until I ran into people who do, all their communication is to by is to stories. Yeah.
0: Okay, well this brings us to the end of our conversation with Martin Rumscheid. Again, thank you so much for being here, for your thank story, you. which we all appreciated, and for this time to have a conversation together. And it also brings us to the end of our program. Our thanks to the PPM TV crew and staff, and our own True Tales Live crew Amy Antonucci, Pat Spalding, Steve Koval, and John Lovering. <clears throat> thanks to each of our tellers. You were great. And as we say on the show, and I've uh, alluded to just now, and it bears repeating, storytelling has the power to create and help sustain a sense of community, and that goes right to the heart of why we do what we do. And at the same time, in, sto- in order for the magic of storytelling to take place, it takes an audience, a village of listeners, as it were, and we thank you for that. Um, as Amy said, we have a new website. Uh, we encourage you to check that out, uh, TrueTalesLive.NH.Org. nh.org. Um, and we'll be developing that as time goes by. Our next show will be, as Amy mentioned, Tuesday, March 26th. The theme for our next show is Losses. And the next workshop, March 5th at 7.30 to 9 p.m. here, downstairs at PPM TV. And if you are considering telling a story, uh, we encourage you attend to, to attend a workshop. They're great, they're fun, they're good for newbies and for experienced tellers as well. And to sign up for a sto- to tell a story, we have True Tales Live NH1 at Gmail. My name is David Franer, and for our entire True Tales Live cast and crew,
1: thank you and good night. I don't want to have the last word, but I'd like to say Amen. <laughs> thank you and good night.